my name's Justin the Clue, and I'm here today with... The great Will Sloan. <laughs> the great Will Sloan? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what is the basis for the statement? Come on. <laughs> okay, yeah, you're right. I'm looking at it. I host two podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, wait, what's the other one, if you oh, want to pimp it? The other one is called Michael and Us, a uh, nostalgic journey through the films of Michael Moore. <laughs> okay, but here we're here to talk about real movies, not those <laughs> Michael Moore films. Yeah, they're terrible. <laughs> um, we're talking about... Oh, what's our podcast called? Uh, crap, yeah, you derailed me. I completely All forgot. I said was the great Will Sloan. I <laughs> Listen, don't... I have a strict <laughs> guideline that I follow. We're the important cinema club, where we talk about important cinema. This is the first time you've ever, like, set up what the podcast is at the beginning. I mean... That's insane. Do I need some kind of tagline? I think we should workshop it here no, and try to figure it out. No, why should we? I ju I'm just so shocked that just me saying the great Will Sloan led to this, like, morass of confusion. Well, it was such a baffling um, <laughs> pronouncement that I was like, wow, well, how did this happen? Listen, our listeners will hear it and they'll be like, he's right. He <laughs> is the great Will Sloan. Kind of like the great Oz... Like, you're just a very pale imitation of what you say you are? You know, <laughs> words hurt. Okay, I'm sorry, Will. I'm but sorry. But what, what are we talking about on the podcast this week? This week, we're talking about the great Joe Dante. The, the truly great Joe the Dante. The truly great Joe Dante. Um, we watched two of his films specifically for this podcast, uh, Hollywood Boulevard, his first film, and Looney Tunes Back in Action, his last big studio picture, I guess, really theatrically, because he has made movies since then, but they mm -hmm. mostly go straight to DTV in um, North America. And also Looney Tunes back in action feels kind of like a last hurrah for him as the kind of uh, studio guy who put his own personal uh, obsessions and satiric agenda in, you know, s smuggled it in, Trojan horsed it into big studio mm -hmm. uh blockbuster fair joe dante we're gonna go through a little bit of a biography right off the top just to kind of contextualize the movies that we're also going to discuss mm -hmm. um but personally joe dante is a filmmaker and i've heard this from a lot of people one of the first directors that you become aware of when watching movies mm -hmm. like when you see gremlins you're like who made gremlins i mean you hear steven spielberg and then it's like joe dante but because a movie like gremlins is so specific and its vision you kind of like latch on to that i remember when I discovered who he was, I was like, I need to see all his other movies, because are they like this? Mm -hmm. Did you have a similar experience? No, I didn't. Um, like, when I was a kid, I saw a lot of his movies, just because they're the sorts of movies that kids watch. So, you know, Gremlins, uh, The Burbs was another one. Small Soldiers, of course, was a pretty big movie when we were kids. That was so weird how big it was, to the point that in cinemas, to this day, they still have giant small soldiers, like, maquettes that are hanging from wires. <laughs> have you notice that when no you go i haven't noticed that That's yeah insane. in ottawa there's ones and they have like the good guys and the bad guys just like how in the scotia bank there's still a big star, star trek yeah thing. um but but also like my friends and i uh liked small soldiers so much that we even started writing a spec script for <laughs> for small soldiers 2 did you um, wow which would have uh, which would have been set years later when uh, kirsten dunst and the other kid were married and had kids and then their <laughs> kids brought bought new small soldiers anyway we only wrote about a, a page of the script and then that was hard so we started writing the letter to the studio <laughs> Where, it's such a great idea. It's it's like it's like you know like dear um dear DreamWorks uh, Steven Spielberg. Yeah, uh, and, and I can't remember what we wrote, but it was something along the lines of uh, if you decide to use this script, please give us credit. <laughs> anyway, but uh, I would say 
uh, maybe a turning point in me being aware of who Joe Dante was was when I saw Gremlins 2, the new batch, and as a kid didn't like it. And that's completely understandable. Just because it was so different from the first Gremlins, um, and it was so kind of... Yeah, it was, it was just very aggressive and weird. Well, because Gremlins 2 is a movie that Joe Dante never really wanted to make, mm-hmm. and the studio went through many drafts and many different directions that they wanted to take it before finally going, please, Mr. Dante, like, you can do whatever you want as long as you give us Gremlins 2. And it's a very, it's just very unusual in that way that it's this rare instance of uh, a massive, hugely expensive franchise studio movie where, you know, an, an, a an artist, an auteur was able to just have carte blanche and do whatever he wanted. It starts with an unrelated Chuck Jones cartoon. Which because that's what he wanted. Which I gotta tell you, it doesn't really work. It doesn't but, really work. But it's no. nice. It is nice yeah. just to see it. Um, and it's so crazy that, and it doesn't follow any of the rules that you think it will to mm. the point of parodying itself over and over again. Right. It even has a scene uh, midway through where Leonard Malton appears as himself because he gave the first Gremlins a bad review. And you, you see him... Uh, recording a TV interview saying how much he doesn't like gremlins and then the gremlins attacking him. (laughs) Or then there's the weird moment halfway through when the uh, gremlins take over the projection booth and then it cuts to the theater showing the movie we're watching and uh, Hulk Hogan is in the audience. But you remember on VHS it was It was a different scene, yeah. Yeah, Because it jumped from channels to channel. But it was just constantly, unlike most uh, mainstream movies, it was just constantly breaking the fourth wall and... uh, yeah, doing weird things with the form. So Joe Dante, from his inception, was always a huge movie buff. Um, he talked about when he went to college, he and his friend um, John Davidson, who would go on to be a producer of m- many early Joe Dante films and other pictures like Robocop and um, Starship Troopers, actually edited something together that sounds so appealing called the movie orgy. Have you heard of this? Yes, I have. And it's supposedly like all, they would collect these prints, either commercials and stuff like that, before the days of digital where you could have everything and they cut together records show that it goes from like three hours to like eight hours. Yeah, it's like an Andy Warhol movie where kind of no two projections of it were the exact same. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was just kind of this mess of footage. A lot of it was... Uh, footage that had been discarded from other prints that had been like beaten up or had been cut off. Uh, and yeah, it was just like a lot of cultural detritus. Yeah. And cut in a way that like one cut would comment on what came before and stuff like that. So it would be like not only absorbing this kind of the stuff that Joe Dante's loves, but also shown in a humorous fashion. And uh, ob- it toured colleges um, in the 70s. Obviously, he didn't have permission from any of the copyright holders of this, so it hasn't been commercially released. Although it did screen in New York, I think, four or five years ago. I think it played in L.A. also at CineFamily, didn't it? In the kind of abbreviated three or four hour version, which is ridiculous when you say abbreviated, but I would have loved to have been there. Yeah. Anyway, that caught the attention of New World Pictures, led by Roger Corman. Uh, yeah, and I believe that John Davidson went to work at New World Pictures first as well, mm-hmm. which kind of got Joe Dante involved, where he um, started working cutting together trailers, which he said, and we'll see later in his life, is something that he always, always loved. I, I Anybody who kind of likes New World Pictures, I think, sort of romanticizes it a lot. Like, it just seems like this really fun place where a lot of 
kind of movie buffs and aspiring filmmakers in their early 20s made uh, crazy movies for no money at all. But then you read something like the Roger Corman written by Beverly, I don't remember. Uh, The biography, yeah, um, Beverly Gray wrote it. And it shows a much clearer picture of, (laughs) man, things were uh, really on a high wire when you worked for Roger Corman. Yeah, well, I mean, basically Roger Corman hired all these young people because they could work for slave wages. (laughs) Exactly. They weren't in the union or... But Joe Dante, um, with his pal Alan Arkish, um, would cut together these trailers that if you go online and watch them, they are insane. They are a lot better than most of the movies. Uh, sometimes you'll see them interviewed about cutting the trailers, and they would say that, uh, you know, whenever whenever the movie was boring or whenever they didn't have enough to work with, they would include a shot of an exploding <laughs> helicopter. So if you watch a bunch of New World Pictures trailers, you'll see that exploding helicopter shot over and over again. Or they would do things like, um, there was a, a black exploitation kung fu movie called... Called TNT Jackson, where they said that the star of the movie had won the first annual Ebony Fist Award. <laughs> yeah, which something is, that did not exist. Yeah, <laughs> but people didn't care. And that trailer, which is for an okay, uh, I think it's Sirio Santiago movie, who was like a Filipino director, mm-hmm. is amazing. Mm. <laughs> you want to see that movie when you see that trailer. But needless to say, like everyone at New World Pictures, they were aspiring filmmakers themselves and mm. gave Roger Corman an offer that he couldn't refuse. Which I was... think it came during a lunch with Roger Corman. They were talking about how cheap pictures can be made. And John Davidson said, I can make you the cheapest picture that New World has ever produced. Which I, And I think it was $50,000. $50,000, yeah. And that picture was Hollywood Boulevard. And the reason they were able to make it for so cheap was they used a lot of stock footage from other New World Pictures movies. So anything where anything happened in the movie. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So Hollywood Boulevard being the first picture directed by Joe Dante and Alan Arkish. Um, Alan Arkish is a director that's not usually talked that much in genre circles. He directed Rock and Roll High School. He made Get Crazy. Uh, he made a the very enjoyable uh, Elvis meets Nixon, which was the predecessor to the one that recently came out. It was Kevin oh, Spacey, okay. and it was a TV movie okay. because Alan Arkish basically worked in TV from then on, mm-hmm. and it's always difficult to be a fan of someone if he only does television. Mm-hmm. Because you can't see his work. And because it's an inferior art form. <laughs> well, okay, sure. <laughs> Will Sloan does not watch any television, no matter how good people say that it is. So Hollywood Boulevard is a movie that I saw a long time ago and I really enjoyed. Mm-hmm. And watching it again, I really enjoyed oh, it. I thought it was super fun. Again, this comes down to, um, you know, romanticizing New World Pictures. It's a movie that is purposefully trying to evoke kind of a fantasy of what it's like to work at New World Pictures. Because it is literally about a crew making a miracle picture in this case, which has the greatest tagline, if it's good, it's a miracle. Right. Uh, The plot is about a young woman named Candy, uh, which is probably um, a reference to either Voltaire's Candide or the then popular Terry Southern novel Candy. Or the then-popular porno film, The Erotic Adventures of Candy. (laughs) Uh, Who moves to the big city, and she wants to be an actress. She wants to make it in Hollywood, and make it, and make it. (laughs) The original title of this film was Starlets. Right. And I think it was changed to Hollywood Boulevard by Roger Corman himself. That's insane that he changed the title. Start, like, you know, Starlets. 
yeah. better title. Hollywood Boulevard is kind of very Boring. generic. Yeah. And, um, and so she goes on all these wacky misadventures where she interacts with New World um, picture footage in a really interesting way, I would say. Yeah. So, you know, they'll be filming like kind of a car crash movie and you'll see a lot of stuff from Death Race 2000 or she'll... Uh, she thinks she's filming a movie, but it turns out she's being re- recruited into a bank robbery. <laughs> and and then s- it cuts to footage from a Big Bad Mama, mm-hmm. I think. And I think that what I really noticed this time is I had a memory of it really being kind of grating and not that funny. Mm-hmm. But this time I laughed a bunch of times. I had the exact same memory of it. Yeah. There's this really funny shot where he goes, all right, everybody, let's go to lunch. And then it cuts to a pig just rolling around in the mud. <laughs> yeah. And I just found that so hilarious. Yeah. It's just like really ridiculous and off the wall. Uh, and, you know, the cast is amazing. It's this great collection of New World Pictures regulars. You've got uh, the great Dick Miller as her uh, sleazy agent, Walter Paisley. Yeah. Uh, you've got um, Mary Waranov, Paul Bartel. Yeah, Paul Bartel. Um, Johnson Kaplan, the mm-hmm. director who made Over the Edge, playing the, like, skeezy PA kind of guy. And Godzilla is in it. <laughs> yeah, I want And we talked about this before, of, like, where that Godzilla suit came from. Because, like, did they get it from Toho and it was sitting in a bin somewhere and they no, pulled it out? No or? idea. But this is this Godzilla costume. I don't know why I'm carrying this fact around in my head. But this Godzilla costume was later later worn by uh, John Belushi when they when NBC played Godzilla versus Megalon mm-hmm. uh, on primetime for some reason. I mean, it's probably someone like Bob Burns that owned it or something like that. And they took it out for the movie because you also get uh, Robbie the Robot shows up mm-hmm. and you get a parody of the fly. because <laughs> There's a fly guy as well. Anyway, this movie is just tons of fun, even if it gets tasteless at times. Oh, it's very politically incorrect, we should say. It has several indefensible gags, which you'll know when you see them. Uh, In the commentary track, um, all three, John Davidson, Joe Dante, and Alan Arkush are watching it, and they're like, oof. (laughs) They're like, well, this is what sold at that time, I guess. Yeah, but it definitely has kind of this really winning quality of just being like uh, a fun movie that a lot of uh excited kids full of piss and vinegar made (laughs) Mm -hmm. and it's you know it moves at a really quick clip which you can say is not true with a lot of uh new yeah that's right um and this movie was not a box office success but i'm sure it made back it's 50 grand (laughs) guaranteed it made back but it didn't really lead them to many other jobs joe dante kind of worked at um continued to work for roger corman he edited grand theft auto ron howard's directorial one of my favorite ron howard films Whoa, whoa, whoa. What about um, The Missing, the Tommy I, Lee Jones? Would you believe I've never seen The Missing? <laughs> I would totally believe yeah. that. Well, well, we'll put that one down for our Ron Howard Important Cinema Club episode. You know what? I would do it. <laughs> Sweet. We can be passionless. Yeah. <laughs> and finally, Joe Dante got the gig of directing Piranha, a late-in-the-tooth parody of Jaws. Uh, and sort of like kind of a tongue-in-cheek um I mean, I guess it's like a standard horror movie, but it's tongue in cheek. Yeah, it's like very winking. And it actually um, created a legal dispute between uh, Universal and Roger Corman at the time until Steven Spielberg stepped in and said, oh, no, I like this movie. It's fine. They can release it. And of course, Steven Spielberg later became an important player in Joe Dante's 
uh, career. Yeah, because from that point, uh, I think Steven Spielberg gave him the gig for, was Twilight Zone first or after, before Gremlins? I don't remember. I think Gremlins was in development for a long time, but and they made Twilight Zone the movie during the development of it. And after Gremlins, which was Dante's biggest hit, and he never recaptured that magic. Never really had a hit after that. No. Is that fair to say? I, that is completely fair yeah. to say. Because he had Explorers, which was compromised by the studio. Inner Space was not a big hit. No. Great movie, though. <laughs> I mean, probably Small Soldiers is the closest thing to a hit. And even that was more of a hit on video. Yeah, and they never had a Small Soldiers too, so it mm-hmm. obviously wasn't that big of a hit. Mm-hmm. And he also made kind of like outliner pictures. It feels like when you read about Joe Dante's career, he's always like pushing up against something with every movie that he makes. Like The Burbs, there was a screenwriter strike, mm-hmm. so they had to use the first draft of the script. And they had the screenwriter on set at all times, even though technically it was not allowed to interact with them <laughs> because that would be breaking guild rules. Interesting. So why, you know, uh, Joe Dante was, I guess, one of the really high profile directors of the 80s, uh, which is a decade that I think a lot of us think was not a very good decade for yeah. film. And, uh, you know, some people will say that it's kind of like the Spielberg ethos of the time, uh, you know. I don't know. I don't want to be pop psychologist here, but Reagan was president and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a lot of the Hollywood blockbusters were sort of reactionary and ugly in a way. Uh, Joe Dante's films are in their gentle way progressive. Yes. And they're also very playful, which I guess differentiates them from, from the other films mm-hmm. that like Canon Films was putting out at the time. Right. Um, Joe Dante was always someone, too, that was right up uh, the precipice of getting another big picture. Like, for a long time, he was going to make Batman. Would have been would have been interesting. But he said his biggest stumbling block was with that is that he wasn't really interested in Batman as a character. And he was well, more interested was in, Tim Burton. <laughs> in the Joker. <laughs> He's like, my picture would have probably centered around the Joker. Well, which is funny that that's exactly what happened yeah. at the end of the day. Um, and, you know, if you look... When you look at Joe Dante's filmography, the first thought in my mind was like, hey, I didn't make that many movies. Mm-hmm. But if you look at the years, he's consistently working on stuff. It's just that there wasn't that big one that would take him to the next level. And you, yeah, and you always feel like, you know, we all love Joe Dante, but it feels like aside from Gremlins 2, there aren't any movies that are just like a pure, uncompromised Joe Dante film. A lot of them. Um, a lot of them are just like small soldiers is basically kind of a standard Hollywood blockbuster that certain of his satiric, uh, certain gentle satiric volleys. I mean, the cast of voice actors who are doing the small soldiers is insane. Basically small soldiers is like kind of a, uh, a really plain donut, but it has some nice sprinkles on it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's how I feel about it, having just watched it again. I remember revisiting it about a year ago, really wanting to like it, and just kind of running up against it and being like, it's fine, I The guess. idea of it is great. Mm. This kind of, uh, you know, Toy Story repurposed as this anti-war, sat- anti-corporate satire. But, it, you know, it's, it's, it's never better pushed in... far enough. That's the biggest issue. Yeah. And I would say my biggest problem, too, with Joe Dante's movies is just the fact that fun stuff is always happening kind of on the edges of the movies. Uh, and, you know, a lot of the comedy is really funny and the, the visual style is great and the satiric ideas are great. But the main story is usually really boring. You think so? Like in Gremlins 2? Yeah, or... really. The whole thing with, you know, the the guy from Gremlins 2 working at the... The Trump-like building. Yeah, and, and you know, Phoebe Cates and all that. Nah. So we should talk about Looney Tunes back in action. Okay, perfect example. 
the the Oof. humans in this movie, any scene with with just the humans in it and no Looney Tunes, it's I'm brutal. Like, I'm like, what the fuck? It's such a weird cast though, where like I'm watching it, I can understand Brendan Fraser. Yeah, but like the and it's weird that they're not really young because you'd think if you'd make a Looney Tunes film, you would make it either teenagers or stuff like I actually, that. I'm not, you know, Brendan Fraser's fine, but I actually think it might have worked a little better if if they had had somebody like I don't know Jason Statham or a real someone who like, could play it straight. Yeah, just too. a real square jawed hero. I mean, that's why Bob Hoskins worked so well in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and they all look a little too old, and it's like a snapshot of that like 2000s era. Yeah. Like. <laughs> And and the villain of the movie played by Steve Martin, terrible, awful, and I his worst performance I would say. And it, does it border into the realm of like anti comedy though? Because well, he was really big into that when you did his stage show. I so. wonder because it, it definitely looks like an attempt to return to like the jerk Steve Martin, and it also looks like an attempt to be a live action Looney Tune. But I mean, it's just. Every time he's on screen, it just stops the movie dead. It's painful. Having said that, I really like Looney Tunes back in action. I also overall. really like Looney Tunes back in action. I liked it more, again, than I saw it last time. It's a very charming film, and it's full of love for the Looney Tunes and their world. I mean, Joe Dante only took this picture because he was so disgusted at Space Jam, <laughs> which was a massive hit when he came out, and he wanted to take the Looney Tunes back to the stuff that he remembered. And apparently this was his most troubled production. Uh, when he's interviewed about it, he says that the studio executives basically had contempt for this project or he said i was i was working with people who would not cross the street to see this movie and <laughs> he would be at meetings with the executives where they were like can we get bugs bunny to rap or <laughs> or, or suppose he said that they had some oscar-winning writer come in to be a script doctor and uh, to add gags and they're watching a rough cut of the film and he says okay pause does bugs bunny have to say what's up doc <laughs> But what's this movie about? Because I'm guessing a lot of our listeners haven't seen Looney Tunes back in action. And every time I put up Looney Tunes back in action, there's always arguments. that's like, what's better, Looney Tunes back in action or Space Jam? Oh, there's no contest. No, I mean, if you think Space Jam is better, that's just nostalgia that's, that's <laughs> yeah. coloring your judgment. Um, Looney Tunes back in action is about... Um, it's such a convoluted <laughs> plot. Yeah. It's Daffy Duck is tired with Bugs Bunny and he gets fired from his job at Warner Brothers. At Warner Brothers. This is also one of those realities that's like, how does it work that the cartoons live with the humans? So like, the idea, it's like Who Framed Roger Rabbit where, yeah, the Looney Tunes live in our world and the Looney Tunes are contract employees at Warner <laughs> Brothers. Basically, it's almost like the studio era where yeah. the studio owns them and there's there's kind of a funny gag where they fire Daffy Duck but they say, we still own your name. <laughs> Which is an example of kind of uh, the gentle satire, the gentle anti-corporate satire uh, inherent in Dante's work. And Brendan Fraser plays a stuntman who's also the son of the studio's biggest star, who Timothy Dalton, playing a James Bond-like figure. <laughs> yeah, right. Timothy, <laughs> Timothy Dalton's okay. He is, but it's such a weird cast that you're like, well, this film has no stars. Yeah, well, you know, Joe Dante has said that he feels this movie was kind of compromised by the fact that it's a lot of disparate elements thrown together so it's weird to have this kind of show business satire and also to have this weird james bond plot <laughs> yeah and then you know it, the movie is extremely episodic so basically they're all on the hunt for some, uh the blue monkey the blue, so steve martin is the the dr evil type villain uh president of acme uh incorporated I, and again this is joe dante's gentle anti-corporate satire but he wants to turn everybody in the world into a monkey 
which is not that funny. It, but isn't it because he wants to turn them into a monkey and then turn them back because they have to pay for it to turn back into human? It's a joke like that. Right. So, But anyway, the movie's extremely episodic. Uh, we follow the Looney Tunes and Brendan Fraser as they go to Las Vegas. Then they go to Area 51, uh, which is a great scene. Yes, because you get to see the man from Planet X. You, see, you get to see Roman From Robot Monster. And Kevin McCarthy as his character from Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Uh, I, you know, just to really... Like, this movie came out around the same time that Kill Bill Volume 1 came out. And I swear, it's like as loaded with sort of film buff in-jokes as that movie is. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then there's a whole uh, frantic climax in outer space where Daffy becomes Duck Dodgers. Uh, But, you know, it's a lot of it's a lot of frantic ridiculousness. And actors who can never quite meet the eyeline of the cartoon (laughs) that they're talking to. But I think what's most charming about this movie is compared to Space Jam. I mean, it just... uh, displays an obvious love of the Looney Tunes and their world and their personalities. And I just love how in this movie, you know, wherever they go, they go, they, it's a globe trotting adventure and wherever they go, there are Looney Tunes characters. there, just kind of living their lives. So, uh, in the Las Vegas scene, they go to Las Vegas and Yosemite Sam is running this big casino empire. And at the casino, there's this table of dogs playing poker. <laughs> and it's all the dogs from all the Looney Tunes cartoons. Yeah. And, or, you know, at the Warner Brothers, studio lot when they're having lunch you see in the background Wiley Coyote and Sam the Sheepdog are at a table and Wiley Coyote is trying to eat a sheep and Sam the Sheepdog punches him in the face and this is just in the background like it's this kind of all the stuff on the edges it's this rich diegesis even the final shot of the movie is like I don't know if you noticed but Joe Dante stuffs all the characters he couldn't get into the movie just all cross frame and and they're all these like really uh kind of unknown characters like Egghead. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so you definitely feel this is a movie where the main plot, Joe Dante was like, I can't do anything about it. Because even in the Steve Martin scenes, like the board is like Ron Perlman. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Mary Warnov is there as yeah. well. Um, Robert Picardo is there. And of course, you know, uh, Dick Miller is in it again as a security guard. Roger Corman. <laughs> Directing a Batman movie. Yeah, Roger Corman is the director of Batman. <laughs> like, those are in-jokes that, like, I feel that that's, like, the lifeblood Dante needed to keep going to make this movie that he felt probably was spinning out of his control. I've got, even though the movie is flawed, um... I was surprised when I learned kind of how alienated he was from this project, because honestly, aside from Gremlins 2, this feels like the most personal Mm -hmm. uh, Dante film. And, you know, if I were just guessing, it feels like the least compromised one, even though it's clearly the most compromised one. I mean, there's uh, when they go to France, you get to see multiple Jerry Lewis posters. (laughs) The movie's sense of humor is basically like you know, so lame that it comes back out on the other side of being funny again. Uh, and I, and you know, I just love uh, that the movie centers around Daffy Duck and his neurosis. Like it would have been easy to make it a movie about Bugs Bunny. And how cool he is or something but, like that. But they choose Daffy, the underdog of the, of the Looney Tunes universe. Did you watch the deleted scenes that I sent you? No, I, I, didn't have minutes? A, I didn't have a chance, but I will get to it eventually. But there's a funny, cause originally structurally the film started with uh, Daffy Duck telling his story of what the rewrite of the movie should be, which is he's the hero and, like, Bugs Bunny is, like, a weakling's always screaming all the time. And I thought that was funny, but I am I wonder if... Because it was a Batman parody as well at the mm. beginning. But that feels like a studio note because the rabbit season, uh, duck season, feels 
closer to the Looney Tunes and something that Joe Dante would have wanted. Yeah, I don't know. So I think the, I love the opening of this movie. <laughs> I know that Joe Dante has said in interviews that the studio hated all the fourth wall breaking gags. That's insane. Which is insane because if you look at the Looney Tunes cartoons, they're all about breaking the fourth wall. It's nonstop. I mean, he even gets a chance to bring Peter Lorre's cartoon character <laughs> yeah. in the movie. Like, yeah. Um, yeah, so pretty much we're saying revisit Looney Tunes back in it, action. It's a great movie for kids and grown-ups. <laughs> Will <laughs> Sloan, the importance of the film. <laughs> Put it on that Criterion uh, re-release of Looney Tunes. But Looney Tunes back in action, unfortunately, was a box office disaster. Which uh, is a little baffling. I like Space Jam was such a huge hit. And you would think that, you know, the Looney Tunes are still a potent enough brand. Uh, Maybe it's because they weren't extreme enough. <laughs> like, well, this was also around the same time that uh, Warner Brothers tried to market Lunatics Unleashed. <laughs> that's what it's called, yeah. Which was... which <laughs> They're all superheroes. And and it's like there are no jokes. They're like these cool, like, crime fight... <laughs> it, it looks like... like anime almost yeah uh, which is insane yeah and it, and basically honestly we haven't really even heard much from the looney tunes since it kind of feels like they've fallen off i gotta ask like i obviously haven't had cable in 10 years but like looney tunes was something that i would watch every sunday on global tv they'd play like what felt like a four-hour block oh yeah i, I, those cartoons. I watched it too and also you know when i was a kid you'd often see it just on weekday mornings mm-hmm. uh like the bugs and daffy show i'm not sure if kids are watching it anymore you know what i was i hope it, they are i was in the u.s and uh, in our hotel room, I would go to Cartoon Network, and during the day, the bulk of the stuff they would play are Looney Tunes cartoons. Oh, good. Um, I know that uh, it, maybe it's harder and harder because those cartoons are incredibly violent, and you know they're full of uh, racism, racism, or just like like there will be gags like um, you know uh, in a, a cartoon called The Scarlet Pumpernickel where. Uh, Daffy Duck is reading a script and he gets into such a frenzy and he gets into such a frenzy and he's so energetic. He goes, and finally, all the pumpernickel could do was kill himself. And he pulls out a gun and shoots himself in the head. And then and then he's dead for 30 seconds. And then his head rises up and he says, it's getting so you have to kill yourself to sell a script in this town. <laughs> but, you know, sadly, uh, because of the blue noses out there, we can't have cartoons where you know, cartoon characters kill themselves anymore. In the DVD releases of the Looney Tunes cartoon, they're called like the Golden Collection. They're like big box set. Yeah. They are uncut on yeah, those. which is great. And contextualized commentaries and stuff like that. Something that we didn't mention is that um, Joe Dante actually wanted to be a cartoonist. That was his main passion when he was a kid. And he just kind of got into filmmaking from a, a bit of a different avenue. Uh, Joe Dante was also, we talked about his kind of cinephilia a lot, but he did also review films and write essays and stuff like that, specifically for a magazine called Castle of Frankenstein, mm. which sounds like an offshot of Famous Monsters of Filmland. Which he also wrote for but, as a kid. Yeah, but it's actually more of a scholarly take on those genre films, mm. sometimes credited as one of the first to center completely on those kind of pictures, like monster pictures, and treat them the way that a magazine like Film Bulletin would. Mm. He They mostly talk about the kind of European cage cinema and stuff like that and they mm. wanted to be the monster version of that mm. and Joe Dante and Castle Frankenstein actually wrote every issue he would take a letter of the alphabet and just write like kind of four five six pages of movies and it wouldn't just be like last man on earth the vincent price film it would also be last year at marion bad mm. the alain renee picture which i would like to point out that he thinks is a masterpiece great well he and of course uh, if you've been on the internet you've probably seen his great website trailers from hell where it's him and his director friends doing commentaries on movie trailers so john landis edgar wright larry cohen uh, lots of other kind of notables. And he talks about uh, the, 
he said that one of the main reasons that he started that website is that he does want that kind of curation that like mm. the important films and that they can discuss them and contextualize them. Well, I love a lot of the trailers are derived from his own personal like 16 millimeter, 35 millimeter trailer collections. And a lot of it's just really obscure stuff like forgotten Bela Lugosi movies like Scared to Death or something. Hey, or... don't forget, he does great commentary on Bela Lugosi meets a Brooklyn gorilla. Yeah, where yeah, one of my favorite films. <laughs> Where, where he talks about having watched it on TV as a kid and thought it was an actual Martin and Lewis film. Um, but, you know, uh, Joe Dante is still making movies. Oh, actually, something I want to address uh, before we move on to that. Did you know that he had a passion project that never got made? Yeah, called, Termite Terrace? Yeah, where it would have been about uh, Chuck Jones, the famous Looney Tunes animator, uh, and, you know, the whole the whole world that produced those Looney Tunes cartoons. I think that would have been amazing. That would have probably been my favorite movie of all time. It, it would have been great, but unfortunately, the studio, Warner Brothers, said that they wanted to do more stuff like Space Jam. Ugh. They wanted to, like, market the characters in new and more marketable ways. You'd think there would be a place to kind of slip that in now because something like, what was that Tom Hanks, Mary Poppins movie that came out? That's oh, kind of Saving Mr. Banks. Yeah, that's dealing in the same kind of territory. And if you could be like, well, let's make our Warner Brothers version of the cartoon. It also seems cartoon like a, a movie that would be kind of ideal for like Netflix. Exactly, or, yeah. yeah. Uh, but, you know, it was not to be. And Joe Dante, we talk about like a Looney Tunes back in action, he got in a car crash or something like that and stopped making movies. But he has not... He has made a, I don't a number of films. He made The Hole. Yeah, and he's also directed a lot for TV. He, yeah. He's done... Um, Hawaii know, Five-0. Yeah, which is clearly, you know, gotta pay the rent. But he does actually, like, the Halloween episodes. So they're mm. usually, like, monster-orientated. Okay. And, like, he did an episode of Legends of Tomorrow, which is a CW DC comic show. Mm. But the episode he directed also took place at Halloween and was set during the 50s. Mm. So he can still kind of cherry-pick the specific things that he wants to make that are, you know, more of his sensibilities. He's So he's done a few independent features since Looney Tunes Back in Action, as you mentioned, The Hole. Which me and Will... We, uh, we, we saw it at the Toronto Film Festival. We saw the first two-thirds, and then somebody pulled the fire alarm, so I don't know how it ends. But. <laughs> and I've seen the ending, and it's great, and I think that Will should check it out. Well, I guess so, because the first two-thirds, meh. But that was a film that was supposed to be, like, a big 3D picture, and was never released theatrically in 3D well, in North America. Well, that's because... Like, he, he completed it just before Avatar came out, and then all of a sudden, movies like Alice in Wonderland or whatever took up all the 3D screens. Um, he also did a, a movie for the Masters of Horror show called Homecoming, which was a very kind of blunt Iraq War satire in 2005. Mm -hmm. did, what did you think of that? I thought it was fine. Like, I watched it once, and I'm never going to revisit it again. Most of the most of Joe Dante's satirical films are pretty gentle, and, you know, the satire is more around the edges. This one is very aggressive and over-the-top with its satire. And it's, also... it's very kind of angry. Um, and... Honestly, I don't like it very much, but I kind of admire where it's coming from. But he, we have to talk about something that I Ugh. I really don't want to have to talk about. Boy, I, I don't want to end this episode on a down note. But yeah, you and I both watched his most recent film, Burying the X. Yeah, what, uh, what do you want to say? the late Anton Yelchin starring in it. And whew, I think you put it best when you said it's like the wrong note being hit over and over and over again. Yeah, it's just like it's so fundamentally wrongheaded and... The, the, every, the every idea of it is just so fundamentally bad that you think, how was this made? So the plot is that Anton Yelchin is a guy with a girlfriend who just won't get off his back. Oh, she's, you know, she she won't let him hang up his movie posters <laughs> in the living room. Uh, she wants to have sex with him nonstop. <laughs> 
<laughs> she uh, paints his apartment without telling him. Oh, uh, women. And and she makes she makes his loser brother not have threesomes in their living room. <laughs> oh man, the comedic relief in this film is so noxious. Uh, like he's awful. So anyway, uh, she dies. She's hit by a bus <laughs> horribly. Meanwhile, he meets uh so uh, Anton Yelchin is a huge movie buff in this movie, and he meets Alexandria Daddario at a, a Val Luton double bill, and and they have this really awkward conversation where he's like, where she's like, oh, I see you're a Val Luton fan. And he's like, oh yeah, he took B grade exploitation, and she said, and she says, and he turned it into art house cinema. <laughs> it's like they sound like they're learning their lines phonetically. <laughs> So anyway, he finds this uh, magic pixie movie buff. Yeah, who owns a novelty ice cream store. Yeah, and, and you think, boy, this is like a ridiculous fantasy. <laughs> this is definitely written by like a 22-year-old who just got out of film school and was like dumped. Yeah. And he's like, I'm going to show them what's what. But meanwhile, his shrewish ex-girlfriend rises from the dead and insists on still being in a relationship with him. Um, and... Like, I don't know, the movie is just so hateful of of women. Like, w- women in this movie are either horrible shrews, or they're these kind of, like... Magical... M- totally unrealistic, like, gorgeous, uh, big-breasted, uh, endlessly understanding women who also love Val Luton movies and really, really, really want to fuck you on the first date. <laughs> But if you don't want to, that's okay. On the surface, this seems like something that I would love, which is like Joe Dante making a movie about people that love movies. Also, Anton Yelchin works in like a novelty horror store. Mm. And it's like, oh, it's like every disparate element is coming together to create a grating hole. And like the ending is so like, I'm going to use just awful it's just wrong and the the lack of empathy for this ex-girlfriend is incredible like uh, she's a monster she's a monster and uh clearly the movie sets her up to have some kind of vulnerability like you know she she really wants to be with him because uh she hates the idea of being rejected and you think that maybe this movie will end with like some sort of understanding nope they just fucking kill her (laughs) because because bitches be crazy Which ends with his um, stepbrother or half-brother or whatever being turned to a zombie and being like, have you ever fucked a zombie? Blah. The, la- the, last, the shot, last shot. Yeah, the last shot is him like miming cunnilingus. <laughs> so I don't know. I just feel bad for Joe Dante because clearly it's he can't write his own ticket anymore. So clearly he doesn't have a lot of choice on what kind of movies he can make. And even the climax of this film is also like set in like the tiniest living room, and it's yeah. so small scale. Well, the movie was apparently shot in something like twenty days, mm. um, and you know the constant movie references in this. Like we see him, we see Anton Yelchin watching Plan Nine from Outer Space on TV, or the Whip in the Body yeah. is playing in the background. And these references, I mean, you know, it's like at least there was something there to occupy my attention. But Yeah, but you were like, man, I wish I was watching that instead. Exactly, and they, they're so forced and unnatural. It feels like Joe Dante kind of trying this to find a way... This is what you like, right, guys? And also just trying to find a way to make this material personal. Mm-hmm. So it's sad, and I hope that this... I hope that he has better movies coming soon. He has a, a movie about Roger Corman, a biopic that he's trying to develop. Yeah, The Man with Kaleidoscope Eyes. But that one has been kind of floating in waiting for that green light for decades. I would love to... Like. S- I hope it happens. I would love to see what he does with that. So do you think that Joe Dante has a place in 
the future of cinema in a way? Or is he more of a bygone era? Well, he's 69 years old. Yes. So he's, he's closer... 69 to, years young. He's closer to the end of his career than the beginning. Um, even if he make, he never makes another movie, I think uh, he's served his function as being kind of an interesting... not not a Maybe not a great director, per se. Oof. There's well, that great director I card know. comes up again. Well, I, I'm just saying that like a lot of his movies are flawed and compromised, but he's an interesting example of somebody who is able to import interesting ideas into what should have been anonymous blockbuster movies. I Yeah, I think that, like you said, it's kind of that personality that really attracted me to his films mm-hmm. and the wry humor. And a mix of both of those things made me want to go, who is this director? And if I make movies, like, I kind of want to mold them in that sense. Not specifically stylistically, but more, like... I like the that he has his stamp on the material. Yeah, and he seems like a good dude. He does seem like a cool guy. Yeah, you know, I've I've spent a lot of hours on trailers from hell. Ah, oh, so many hours. Yeah, and I wish we could get in that inner circle because I remember Tim Lucas, the uh, founder of Video Watchdog, saying that in when the internet first started coming into fruition and everyone's getting connections joe dante would send out a newsletter every week of his thoughts on movies and stuff like that that sounds like heaven to okay, like re- so, so you want to be joe dante's friend yes is that <laughs> is that the hidden agenda of this episode <laughs> what no i love joe dante's movies and i mean we I don't know, maybe he's a terrible person i don't know well i mean yeah i mean i think you should have put your plea to be his friend before we spent five minutes <laughs> destroying uh burying the axe <laughs> do you think we would get an email from him being like i agree or would he take it very personally? Uh, I think he's not stupid. <laughs> yeah, like, that movie's <laughs> not good. Yeah, I'm sorry. Okay, so what are we doing next week, Will? Uh, we're talking about somebody named Robert De Niro. The great actor. And we're gonna look at two phases of his career. We're going to watch Raging Bull, which you might have heard of. I hear that's a good movie. And his, uh, we're also gonna watch his, a sequel in spirit. <laughs> his later boxing film, Grudge Match, with Sylvester Stallone. <laughs> So I suggested Dirty Grandpa, and you said, well, I've already seen that movie. Although I, I highly recommend it. Listen, Dirty Grandpa, the first half has some big laughs. Does it? Is it like a That's My Boy level laugh? Well, I haven't seen That's My Boy, but there's a part where uh, Robert De Niro is talking to Zac Efron. And he says, I want to fuck. I want to fuck. I want to fuck a horse. <laughs> And that scene is so funny. <laughs> like, the first half of the movie is like almost like Spring Breakers. <laughs> um, are we going to have difficulty, like, treating this subject seriously with the way that Robert De Niro's later career has gone? I, th- I think Raging Bull speaks for itself, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. But we're not going to, like, just make jokes the entire time to Robert De Niro's expense? I think w- there will be some jokes. But, I mean, at the end of the day, the man uh, did great work. <laughs> Yes, that's currently being overshadowed by all the work that he's doing right now. And you know what will endure? I think the movies that will endure are Taxi Driver, Meet the Parents. Uh, <laughs> Meet the fuckers. All the, all the great films. Uh, Godsend. <laughs> and Machete. <laughs> I can't believe he's actually a Machete. The great Steven Seagal, Robert De Niro collaboration. Yeah. All right, well, my name is Justin the Clue. I was the great Will Sloan. <laughs> you will never say that again. Thanks for listening. So, the news finally broke. Suspect Video, a Toronto video store institution, is finally shutting down. Well, you know, you're a bit of a Johnny-come-lately with this news because, uh, you know, the the Woodward and Bernstein of his time, Will Sloan, already reported this scoop. Well, you didn't report that it was closing down, and that was a big kind of controversy. I, I reported that it was, like, 
they they said that it was probably going to close at the end of the year. But everybody knew it was going to close because the um, yeah. the kind of building that it's part of, which is the Honest Ed's building, is being turned into condos. Yeah. So it can't exist no matter what. And so anyway, as a result of it, my article went like semi-viral, about as viral as something like this can go. Um uh, with people saying, oh no, RIP suspect video, RIP suspect video. And I felt like, oh no, I didn't mean to like literally kill the star. <laughs> and now it's literally dead yeah, or now, going to die. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What do you think? Like how important was suspect video to you? So suspect video, when I first came to Toronto, when I visited independently on my own, probably my first year of college to visit a friend who had moved to Toronto was my everything. When I walked into that store and it wasn't the one that exists right now. It was the one that used to be on, on Queen, Queen Street, Street that burnt down, which yeah. was a huge one. Mm-hmm. Um, it, they had everything I could possibly ever imagine. Oh, yeah. I remember renting like 10 movies just to take home and to watch that night, I guess, <laughs> because that's the, all the time that I had. And I would just, when I went back to Ottawa, I just told myself, like, I need to go to Toronto so I can go to somewhere like Suspect Video. How about mm. you? Oh, I mean, it was it was very similar. I mean, I, I remember they had a whole uh, it, in Fisher University. They had a whole superhero section where they had like all of those Turkish or like know. three Dev Adams, the one where Spider Man, yeah. Captain America, and or, Santo, or Filipino up. Batman stuff, and and it just sort of like blew my mind. To I, I I wasn't even aware that those movies existed before then, or uh, you know, just they had stuff that was impossible to find anywhere else at the time, like the whole 1966 Batman series, mm-hmm. um, which at that time was impossible to find or um just an endless like vhs section of all sorts of obscurities like all the movies that i you know grew up really wanting to watch they all had like all the sammo hung movies or the stuff you'd read about in books it was all there but where is the place of video stores now like do and i say video store not specifically like vhs Mm -hmm. i'm using in the broadest sense of like places to go that have movies that you can either buy or rent or whatever yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think, like, on some level, I love video stores. On some level, like, let, let's not kid ourselves. It's more convenient to watch a movie like Guardians of the Galaxy if you're just like watching it on Netflix, mm-hmm. right? Like, it, it's it's not it's not fun to trek all the way to a store to rent Guardians of the Galaxy and you have to return it in two days. Yeah. I think that what's going to happen, though, is that, you know, it's a classic thing. If you have all this choice, people can't make a decision. Mm -hmm. And to be cool, to know things that other people don't know, that this curation kind of service has to exist somehow. Yeah, for sure. And that there's always going to be a place for this. Even though that I worked at a video store for um, multiple years in Toronto. Which shall remain nameless. (laughs) What do you want to say? Yeah, I saw cinema. It's fine. And they just reopened again. I don't even know what the current address is. It's, but th- it's in Blurdale somewhere. Yeah, yeah Blurdale. And um, what I discovered is that very few people wanted to be challenged, though, when they rented movies. Yeah. Like, they wanted that one thing that they wanted. That's what I loved about Suspect. I was constantly... They had a staff recommendation section where I just constantly found uh, amazing stuff that I'd never heard of. Or just, you know, just like... Uh, God, I could spend whole afternoons just like looking through the movies and finding weird stuff. There's this one that I found called uh, If Footmen Tire You, What Will Horses Do? That's the Christian yeah. exploitation film, right? By, yeah. It was directed by this guy, Ron Ormond, who made B-movies in the 50s and survived a plane crash. And that made him into a fundamentalist Christian. And he did this movie that's all about how the communists will take over America if <laughs> if uh, we abandon our Christian values. And it's all about and it's all narrated by this like 
crackpot Southern Baptist preacher. And, you know, it's just stumbling onto stuff like that. That's not something that... You wouldn't actively go out and look for that specifically. Yeah, like the internet is great. uh, Torrent sites are great. Or uh, stuff like iTunes or Netflix are great if you know what you're looking for. Um, But if you don't, then you're screwed. And Mm -hmm. like, how many people have sat at the computer and gone, man, I'm so bored when they have the internet in front of them and they can do literally anything. Yeah, I know. Thank you, Louis (laughs) (laughs) C.K. I think the kids should put away their phones and go play outside. But like I said, I feel that video stores will have a place. Like people are saying like, oh, it's dead they'll disappear and never come back again. But that's like the same idea with vinyl, right? Yeah, well, I mean, record stores have a place, even though, like, I think there has to be a taste for this kind of, like, curated cinephilia. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Toronto for a long time had an insane amount of video stores. They had, like, 12 over the last five years. And now we've got Queen Video in the annex. We've got Bay Street Video. Mm -hmm. Which I very much enjoy, but you don't go to. Too far for you. It's a little, well, it's far from where I live, but I sometimes go, you know, if I'm shopping for DVDs. They have great DVD selections. They get, like, all the new stuff from all the little distributors as well Mm -hmm. and at very competitive prices usually five dollars less than on places like amazon yeah uh and aside from that Uh, i'm trying to think there's gonna be one that we forgot that's gonna be like how could you forget me yeah but really i mean hmv is still open somehow down at that's incredible i mean you know i'm sure like ryerson is probably looking for a way to build something there (laughs) yeah exactly um but if you live near a video store and by that i mean queen video and bay video go visit them or eyesore cinema yeah 